I'm John Edwards, the lute player and artistic director of The Musicians in Ordinary. You're hearing an excerpt from The Countess of Pembroke's Paradise by Anthony Holborn. The Countess of Pembroke of the title was Mary Sidney, and this podcast is part of a series supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Spem in Allium Fund of the Toronto Foundation, and York University where you'll hear poems and readings spoken in original pronunciation by actor Tracy Ryan by and about the Sydney family, Philip, Mary and Robert, as well as lute pieces dedicated to them and programmatic of their lives. Deanne Williams is professor in English at York and Killam Research Fellow. In this episode, I spoke to her over the internet during the COVID lockdown about the Sydneys and their contribution to literature as inspirers and innovators, practitioners and patrons in the Elizabethan and Jacobean period. Deanne, when I have to think about the Sydney family or the Herbert family or the Devereux family and things like this, I always have to keep thinking to myself, okay, whose uncle was he again and who was she married to? And So why don't you just do a quick synopsis of who the Sydney family and all the cast of characters that we need to understand what's going on here. Tell us about that first. Oh, I would, I would, love, I would love to do that. You know, there's a, there's a Vampire Weekend song called, called Cousins. Uh, and and the, uh, the song goes, it's a line that always is always running. Me and my cousins and you and your cousins. It's a line that's always running. That's kind of the, um, the way I think of the Sydney family. They're all, they're all they're basically they're all cousins. They're all related. It's, a, it's an interesting illustration of just the incredible tightness of Elizabethan social circles. So we can start with, um, with Philip Sydney, uh, who was born in, in 1554. He was born about a decade before Shakespeare uh, and Marlowe, so he was a slightly older, slightly older brother type generation. So he's our our starting point. He was a uh, a hero. He was a you know one of the only the good die young kinds of characters. Philip died at a very early age. He was only uh, thirty one. So he was the he was a hero to the Elizabethan populace at large. Uh, and also to his two uh, siblings, his younger sister Mary and his younger brother Robert. So Philip and Mary and Robert's parents were Sir Henry Sidney, who was the Lord Deputy of Ireland, a very important person in Elizabethan England, who owned uh, an amazing house called Pencehurst in Kent who had been, as a young man, the companion of of Prince Edward, who was to become Edward VI. And his wife was Mary Dudley, who was very close uh, as a lady-in-waiting to Queen Elizabeth. She was a um, a gentlewoman of the privy chamber for Queen Elizabeth. And she was a sister of Guildford Dudley, who married uh, Lady Jane Grey. And so the family was very much closely connected to that whole tragic story of Lady Jane Grey and her brief, uh, her brief days, her brief time as uh, queen. The Sydneys, generally speaking, were a family that were both extremely uh, well-connected, uh, extremely successful, but also kind of felt at the same time that they never really got 
their due from Queen Elizabeth. And so this feeling that Philip's father nursed against his queen continued into Philip's life as well. So Philip married a woman called Frances Walsingham, but he was really in love with a woman called Penelope Rich. When he met her, she was Penelope Devereux. She was another highly connected uh, Elizabethan and Jacobean. She was one of the ladies of the bedchamber to Queen Anne. Her brother was the very famous Earl of Essex, Robert Devereux, who had a notorious reputation uh, at the Elizabethan court. And in fact, her great-grandmother was the sister of Anne Boleyn, was Mary Boleyn. And so her grandmother was, in fact, possibly um, the daughter of Henry VIII. Mary Boleyn was known to have had an affair with Henry VIII. And so the parentage of her daughter was never uh, entirely clear. Which means, if that was the case then, that Penelope Devereux was also a relation of Queen Elizabeth herself. So we see how these Goodness. circles and, yeah, circles and circles. Philip's sister, Mary Sidney, married the Earl of Pembroke. Uh, Henry Herbert, who was a tremendous literary patron. And we will be talking about Mary Sidney's own poetical work um, later on in this podcast. And Philip's brother, Robert Sidney, also a tremendous literary patron uh, and author in his own right. He also had, he followed very much the same pattern um, in terms of his uh, education as Philip. He first went to uh, Shrewsbury School and then on to Christchurch, Oxford, a uh, very similar background. Um, and at the end of the day, it was Robert, I kind of feel, who kind of won. Um, he was, <laughs> he was, a, he was um, got to enjoy the literary fame that Philip uh, was unable to enjoy because he died so young. Um, he, he also ended up getting what Philip really wanted, uh, which was not literary fame so much as the title. So when Philip died, Robert became the heir of their father, Henry, and so ended up inheriting the famous house, uh, Penshurst, which was memorialized by Johnson. But he also ended up getting the title of the Earl of Leicester, which was a title uh, that came down through his mother's line. And at the end of the day, when all of the heirs had passed away, it was Robert who was left standing and he became the Earl of Leicester. And a very important courtier in James I's uh, court, of course, as well. Yes, an extremely well-connected and well-loved Jacobean courtier. His daughter was uh, Lady Mary Roth, who was the, he was, she was his first daughter, and she was raised at beautiful Pencehurst Place, one of the um, most famous ancient houses in England, a house that had long been admired by, by poets like Ben Jonson, uh, was one of the uh, oldest private gardens in England. She had an amazing uh, childhood uh, in terms of her education, in terms of her access. She danced before Queen Elizabeth as a teenager. And she uh, also had a very rich uh, literary career. Perhaps only richer than her literary career was her love well, life. Well, yes, I, I, was, I was just thinking of that. So, yeah, so she did not have a very happy marriage, but she had a very long affair with uh, William Herbert, the Earl of Pembroke who was also uh, largely uh, a highly admired courtier 
very much admired by the Queen. In fact, uh, Lady Mary Roth and the Queen were kind of rivals for the affections of uh, William Herbert, who was admired as well by Shakespeare. Uh, he's a candidate for possibly for Shakespeare's Fair Youth. The sonnets are dedicated to W.H. and so much critical ink has been spilled over who is the identity of this W.H. and uh, it's possible that the W.H. is William Herbert, the Earl of Pembroke, is the only begetter of Shakespeare's sonnets. And of course, you know, we were talking about cousins, so uh, William Herbert was also Lady Mary Roth's cousin. He was the son of Sidney's sister, Mary Sidney. Remember, she married the Earl of Pembroke. She was herself the Countess of Pembroke. So they're all, all of these families, all of these top families, particularly become the top families uh, in James I's reign. They're all interconnected in so many different ways. And in fact, they're interconnected as patrons and subjects, perhaps, of uh, poems and plays. Absolutely. Uh, at I have the time. a great, a great example of how that works. So Lady Mary Roth's great work was called The Countess of Montgomery's Urania. Who is the Countess of Montgomery? Well, the Countess of Montgomery was Lady Mary Roth's neighbor, but she also was the daughter of um, Edward de Vere, who was the Earl of Oxford, one of the candidates for, uh, you know, people like to think the author of Shakespeare's works. But he's not important for our purposes for that at all. But he is important because he and uh, our friend Philip Sidney had a famous fight on a tennis court in the 1570s. Philip was playing a very happy game of tennis and Edward de Vere came marching in and insists that he give the, give the court over so that Edward himself can play some tennis. And there was a, a spat and um, he called Philip a puppy, uh, illustrating his, uh, his scorn and uh, disdain and slight regard for, uh, for the younger Sir Philip and who was schooled by the queen and said to him that he needed to uh, respect his superiors. This uh, Philip Sidney character sounds like a bit of a hothead to me. Yes, a bit of a bit of a hothead. He was um, engaged at one point to be married to Anne Cecil, uh, the daughter of William Cecil, Lord Burley, one of Elizabeth's uh, most uh, important uh, advisors. Sort of a prime minister. Kind uh, of a prime minister figure. But it turned out that Anne Cecil ended up marrying Edward de Vere, he of the puppy story. And their daughter is the Countess of Montgomery. So it all comes back. It all comes back. Um, and she married someone called Philip. There's a limited number of names, all these Marys, all these Philips. Uh, so, and uh, not to it, mention Elizabeths. The Elizabeths everywhere you look. Uh, so uh, hopefully we can keep this straight. Let's, let's move on to talk about Philip Sidney's important poetic works and what his important publications were. Right. Well, he is, he is one of the most important writers in English literature as someone who kind of invented English literature, invented a series of genres as he was writing them for the very first time. He was a very significant figure, not only uh, for his own time. He kind of initiated the whole genre of literary criticism with his work, The Defense of Poesy. Uh, defensive Poetry, which is a prose work which talks about the way in which poetry, by which he means literature, not just metrical or rhyming writing. He means all of literature as a kind of poetry. And in fact, his prose writing is itself very, very poetic. 
can inspire people. It can inspire people to uh, virtuous acts and, and higher and higher feelings. Um, one of the things he advocated in the defense of poetry was the idea of mixing genres. And we know Shakespeare, of course, was notorious for bringing together comedy, tragedy, pastoral, and so on. He also mixed a poetic medium as well. He, he wrote in prose, he wrote in poetry, uh, and he advocates for this kind of mixture um, as he's working through for himself the idea of English literature itself as a kind of mixture of different sources and different traditions, um, which it imitates. He thinks of imitation as very key to literature. And he's, and in fact, in one of the poems we're going to hear, in the, the first poem in Astrophel and Stella, there's a lot of uh, lines about he turns over others' leaves to other, others' pages to see if he can get some inspiration for writing these poems. He talks about how he studied all these other people and is trying to imitate them and then realizes at the end that he just needs to look in his heart and write about his love. Yes, exactly right. So that's something that's really interesting to think about, the idea that this whole humanist tradition of, of writing as a kind of an imitation of your sources, we can kind of map on to the, um, the act of life, which uh, Sidney was very much a proponent of. He cared very little for the, 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 the literary work that he did. He thought of it as a trifle. He described it as like a child's <laughs> toy. Uh, he was really much more concerned with the, uh, the grand heroic gestures. But he had this idea that literature could inspire these kinds, this kind of virtue, right? So literature itself as providing something that can be imitated for the reader. Mm -hmm. I just mentioned Astrophil and Stella. Tell us about that collection of poems. Right. So Astrophil and Stella was the first sustained sonnet sequence in the English language. So sonnets had been circulating in continental culture for about 200 years when, uh, when Sir Philip Sidney got a hold of them. And they started as being little collections. And then over time in Italian and in French, authors had started writing sustained collections of sonnets which followed a kind of a narrative trajectory. And we know very well about Shakespeare's sonnets and how they have this kind of narrative story, this storyline with the fair youth and the dark lady. But it was Philip who really brought that genre to England with his Astrophil and Stella. And the publication of his Astrophil and Stella initiated a, a, a craze for the writing of sonnet sequences in English. And so Elizabethan authors and Jacobean authors tried their hand at this genre, writing their own sequences of sonnets. So we have Spencer's uh, sonnet sequence. Uh, we have Shakespeare's as well. Daniel is one of my favorites. Daniel, one of your favorites. Sydney's characters in Astrophil and Stella are Astrophil, whose, whose name means uh, lover of the stars, uh, and Stella, whose name means star. Astrophil also, as a name, uh, harkens back to Philip as well, right? Astrophil um, and Philip. Philip's name, in fact, means in Greek, um, horse lover. Phil meaning lover, like Astrophil, lover of the star, and hippos, uh, which means horse. And it's interesting that um, Sidney's uh, first major work, Defense of Poetry, actually starts off with a little discussion of horsemanship. He talks about how he and one of his friends had had the opportunity to learn from one of the great horsemen of the Italian court. 
and the way that the horses were treated by this equestrian made him, he says, want to wish himself a horse. <laughs> so um, Astrophil is a, is a sort of a lovelorn shepherd, and Sidney elaborates this story of Astrophil's love for Stella over a series of 108 sonnets. One of the things that is important as he is sort of inventing the sonnet sequence in English is that he changes, makes some changes to the rhyme scheme of the sonnets, which is important for English authors because uh, unlike French and Italian authors where they have um, many more words that rhyme, in English it's harder to find rhymes. And so he makes changes to the rhyme scheme um, with the sonnet to allow for a greater range of rhymes to make it a little bit easier for the English poet. So Sidney's inventing this sonnet sequence, but he's also fitting his own work within a tradition of pastoral literature by taking on this identity of Astrophel as a shepherd. Uh, so Sid, Philip Sidney's sonnets, Astrophel and Stella, circle around in manuscript, like friends handing them out to friends for a while. And then after his death, they get printed and are quite popular and so uh, Shakespeare's publishers come along and say, oh, that looks like sonnet cycles are a hit this year. Let's print uh, all of Shakespeare's sonnets. Yes, exactly right. So tell us a little about pastoralism and shepherds out there being perfect lovers and perfect members of society. The pastoral as a literary genre has its roots in uh, Latin literature. Um, these texts were were imitated and commented upon by European authors and, and uh, turned into a kind of a very lear a learned discourse about that revolved around a certain world. The world is Arcadia. Arcadia is this kind of um, ideal landscape of where where shepherds and shepherdesses can retire from the travails and difficulties of the court and spend their time composing songs, like, um, like the songs that we see in Astrophil and Stella, and debating philosophy, um, and chasing nymphs, and uh, generally having a grand old time. It's interesting to think about the pastoral in the current context of retreat. We are all hiding behind our own uh, walls in our own kind of pastoral retreat, baking sourdough bread and uh, <laughs> making music at home. We're part of a long tradition of people, especially um, in, in Sydney's time, people running away to the country to escape the plague. We're doing exactly that right, uh, even, uh, even as we speak. Yeah. But uh, pastoralism, it's sort of prescriptive in a way, is in, um, when, when, you, when we see Astrophel as a lover... What would a perfect lover be like uh, who can love without all the nonsense of court uh, and who you've got to marry because your family has to move ahead and things like this? He's a perfect lover who loves for love. He's a lover, not a fighter. <laughs> that too. Although Philip Sidney, it must be said, was definitely a fighter too. Was definitely a fighter too. The pastoral as a genre also often has a very familiar set of characters drawn from classical mythology. Uh, you know, Pan, Bacchus, the goddess of wine, uh, the god Sylvanus. Pan and Sylvanus are both kind of fawns, you know, half, half human, um, half goat. Very lusty figures, always, um, always, chasing, always chasing nymphs. 
Um, so let's talk about uh, you. You mentioned the the place uh, Arcadia, which of course one of his most famous works, Sydney's most famous works, is entitled Arcadia, and in fact, when it's published, is called The Countess of Pembroke's Arcadia, dedicated to his sister Mary, the Countess of Pembroke. Tell us about Arcadia. Right. Well, there are two things to unpack there in that title, right? There's first the idea of Arcadia as a location, and then there's also the idea of the dedication um, to Mary Sidney. So the title Arcadia refers back to the um, the kind of mythical place of pastoral poets, um, but it also refers specifically to a um, uh, an Italian text by Sanazzaro called Arcadia, which was um, immensely popular and one, one of Sidney's major, major sources. The, the genre of the pastoral kind of got folded into another genre, the romance genre. And so following in the footsteps of texts like Heliodorus's Ethiopica, which is about Ethiopia, as well as Sanazaro's Arcadia and um, Diana uh, by Montemayor, these pastoral romances involve shepherds, but shepherds who are also knights, also courtiers, and so there are all of these multiple roles that uh, we also see Sidney himself in his life performing. And the the uh, plot of Arcadia is kind of complicated. You have knights who start pretending to be shepherds, and there's some cross-dressing in there. It's got it all. Oh yes, shepherds dressed as Amazons. Arcadia was also written in, in a period of retreat, um, Sidney was not escaping the plague. He was uh, escaping the disapproval of the queen in the aftermath of his own opposition to her marrying the Duke of Alençon. And he was uh, unpopular with the queen after taking such a vocal, as you said earlier, hot-headed position. And so um, with his new wife, Frances, he was away from the court for a long time and writing Arcadia. He was also, um, perhaps much more importantly, he was in the company of his sister, Mary Sidney, the Countess of Pembroke. And so the title of the text, The Countess of Pembroke's Arcadia, reflects uh, her incredibly intense involvement in this text. There are two versions of the Arcadia. The old Arcadia was actually uh, only circulated in manuscript in its time. It wasn't even published until the beginning of the 20th century. And then there was a subsequently revised new Arcadia, which was revised for publication after Sidney's death. And uh, Mary Sidney took parts of the old Arcadia and kind of grafted them on to a new version of the Arcadia, which Sidney had been writing before he died. So Sir Philip Sidney hadn't actually completed his revisions to the old Arcadia. So in fact, uh, his manuscript um, just breaks off in the middle of a sentence, in the middle of a sword fight. And so uh, Mary Sidney had to cobble together a new version based on those two, the, the two versions she had, a half-completed revised version, and then the completed but unrevised old Arcadia. And so this new version is known as the Countess of Pembroke's Arcadia, and it reflects, the title reflects the way in which she works as editor, uh, literary executor, perhaps co-author as well. Yeah, it's hard, it's, it's impossible to tell where Philip finishes and she... Exactly right. Uh, she takes up. She, Philip had revised it somewhat, but she uh, then revises it much more after he's dead for public publication. 
Right, it's arguable that we can even think of her in some ways as the kind of author of this text. Mm-hmm. Or co-author, at the very least. At the very least, a, co- a co-author. And we, and we see as well in the, in the Countess of Pembroke's Arcadia, the efforts that she um, went to keep alive the memory of, of Sir Philip. Uh, now, we, sh- we know she was a very good poet, and we'll find out in this series of podcasts that she's a very good poet herself, because we'll be hearing a big uh, sort of lamentation on her brother's death by Mary Sidney. Tell us about Mary Sidney and her works and her skills. Well, along with her work on the Arcadia, she also is the translator of Psalms. That's another shared work with her brother. Her brother had translated a set of uh, uh, the first, I think, 40 or so Psalms, and then she picked up the project and completed it. In, uh, in, in England at the time, the, the uh, translation of the Psalms that you'd normally say or sing was called Sternhold and Hopkins. Some of them are, have a sort of simple dignity, these psalm translations. All people that are on earth do dwell is still in the hymn book now, and it's sort of this very stolid poem. Some of them are this silly doggerel that the psalms deserve better thought a lot of people having to sing them in the 1580s, 90s, 1610s. So uh, there, there was a few attempts to make more better poems out of the metrical psalms. And the Sydney's uh, were one of these attempts. That's absolutely right. And one thing that's interesting about the, the, their, their work as, uh, as translators is, is the, the ways in which they make translation choices to comment on politics, on theology, religion, um, and Mary Sidney's uh, translations also uh, insert uh, certain reflections on um, women's own experiences. And I understand there's a she's got a play, a closet drama, Antonius, that's uh, again in this genre of imitation of other authors, and then is very influential itself. Right. Well, you know, Mary Sidney was a tremendous translator. One of the you know the key skills of a humanist education. So she translated um, works by Petrarch, translated Petrarch's uh, Triumph of Death. A work by Philippe de Mornay as well, The Discourse of Life and Death. And she translated a play by the French uh, playwright Robert Garnier called Marc Antoine, which, along with Samuel Daniel's Cleopatra, was a tremendous influence on, on Shakespeare's own um, Antony and Cleopatra. So here we have the Sydney's influencing the sonnet of Shakespeare and his plays. They're all over this, these Sydney's. They're all over everywhere. They are all over. And you can see they really have their fingers on all of these very significant cultural touchstones. Um, you know, the, the translation, the composition of poetry in dramatic, the dramatic works. Um, Sydney also wrote uh, a, a mask called The Lady of May as well. So he's a, he's a dramatist as well as a prose stylist as well as a poetic creator. And, uh, and as you say, a literary critic who's uh, influential as well. And a literary critic as well. Tell us about Philip and Mary's little brother, Robert. Well, little brother Robert very much followed in his brother's footsteps. They had the same education. He even had his brother's job. Uh, (laughs) Sir Philip Sidney was the governor um, of Flushing in the Netherlands. And then when he 
uh, died at the Battle of uh, Zutphen, fighting the Spanish. Robert Sidney himself became the governor of Flushing, where he was working while uh, Lady Mary Roth was a young child. So he was a, um, he's a poet in his own right. His poetic work has recently come to light. He wrote a poetic response to Astrophil and Stella. It's interesting that there's a letter that survives uh, to Robert Sidney from their, their father, Henry, uh, where he holds up, you can imagine how this f would feel to a younger brother. He holds up Sir Philip as this paragon of everything, everything perfect he's ever seen, the sort of the pattern of the perfect courtier. And then he tells little brother Robert, imitate him. His brother was always his model, um, and this was encouraged, encouraged by his father. So he did imitate him, but he also got to fulfill all of Philip's dreams. He got to uh, dwell in their father's home uh, at Pencehurst, which is much admired by poets such, such as Johnson, who, who primarily views Pencehurst as a, as a really fantastic place to eat, to dine. Um, but that perhaps says more about Johnson than it actually does about, <laughs> about Pencehurst itself. He also ultimately got to inherit the title that Sidney had always aspired to. There is a um, one of these, there's a lot of little stories about Sir Philip Sidney, um, little narratives. I remember when Sir Philip did this. Um, and one of them has to do with him wearing, um, at, a, at a jousting tournament, uh, wearing a shield with the word sperabi crossed out as an indication of his lost aspirations. I've lost all my hope. He lost all his hope. So ultimately, Robert ends up inheriting the title Earl of Leicester, uh, which he had as the nephew of his, uh, Robert Dudley, the, um, his mother's brother, and was ultimately, in fact, even went beyond that and became a Viscount. He became Viscount Lyle because he was a favorite of James. One of the pieces we'll hear, indeed, one of the loot pieces is uh, the Viscount Lyle, his galliard, dedicated to Robert Sidney. And uh, in fact, it's from a collection of songs called A Musical Banquet, published by Robert Dowland, son of the famous, more, son of the more famous lutenist. Robert uh, publishes a book called Musical Banquet, which is dedicated to Robert Sidney. Uh, has this lute solo at the end, but it's mostly songs. And there's songs in there that are, in fact, settings of the songs from Astrophel and Stella that we were telling about. On the subject of banquets, we're back to food again. Yes, exactly. Well, we can never get away from that so now that we're all baking delicious bread at home and things like that. Well, it really does sound like Robert won the lottery ticket in the Sydney family. And we will hear a poem from him, and we'll hear his lute piece, and we'll hear some of those other poems by Philip, Mary, and a few readings about the tragic death of Philip Sidney at the Battle of Zutphen, uh, fighting against the Spanish. Subscribe to this podcast feed, then, to hear the next episode. Hallie Fischel has prepared text in the pronunciation of the time of the Sidneys and Shakespeare, and Tracy Ryan will read the first poem from Astrophel and Stella, which introduces the sonnet cycle to English poetry. And I'll play The Right Honourable the Lady Rich, her galliard, dedicated to the Stella of the cycle, composed by John Dowland and printed in a collection called A Variety of Lute Lessons in 1610, compiled by Dowland's son, Robert, the godson of Robert Sidney. If you would like to help support these podcasts, please go to musiciansinordinary.ca and click through to canadahelps.org.